Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Welcome to those of you who have decided to worship with us this morning and those of you online. We had to cancel our services in our Mecca campus due to COVID exposures and so uh, I, I tell you the truth, Park County is really struggling with this. And so I want to continue to pray for them and do all we can to help. But uh, praise the Lord, we're able to have church today. A lot of people couldn't be here. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of our congregation is not here. Uh, I expected some people would be gone, but this is more than I expected. Either way, uh, I'll tell you what I do know. God's here. Uh, and I don't care if there's one person. I've, I've preached to a church with no people in it before. I never thought that would be, but the day has, has, has happened. And so COVID's made a lot of changes for us. The one thing COVID hasn't changed is God's ability to be our God. The fact that He is. And so last week we began our sermon series, Living a Godly Life in an Ungodly Society. And I ask you a very pointed question. Do you take God seriously? That's a fair question, isn't it? And most people jump Right away to the answer, of course I do. Well, no, you might not. And I wonder oftentimes, uh, and because I've, I've found myself, I've done a time or two, uh, for those of you who are uh, sitting here today, do you listen to what's being said? Or are you just kind of present? Do you hear the word of God? Or are you too busy screwing around? we got a lot of people screwing around these days. I'm not saying here, although no, I do notice you, by the way, when you do it. And I take a mental note right here. And when you come to me and say, I don't understand something, I say, well, no, no doubt, no wonder. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> we are not nearly as dumb as we think we are sometimes. I remember a number of years ago uh, when I came here, uh, and uh, I was asked to uh, coach football. And uh, I was excited to do that. Uh, my son, Frank, had been in the uh, Penn High School system, and, of course, uh, even in the middle school level at Penn, uh, run a pretty comprehensive uh, offense. And when I came to Terre Haute, I found that we were not, no, not nearly as advanced. Uh, of course, that comes to no surprise to anybody. Uh, either way, uh, I'm not trying to rip, just, just hear me out. And so, uh, having said that, uh, I found that when I instituted an offense, that our young men were completely lost. And it was said to me many times, I think it's just too much for our kids to handle. And this is what I said. Are our kids in Vigo County dumber than kids everywhere else? I doubt it. 
Friends, you can be what you choose to be. You can aspire to whatever you aspire to be. Now, I believe we ought to set goals, but they ought to be reachable goals. Come on, right? They ought to be reachable. But the fact is, if you expect mediocrity, that's what you'll get. If you aspire to mediocrity, that's what you'll be. But if you aspire to greatness, you have a very good chance of reaching it. All the more so as it relates to God, because He said so. I don't think it's unrealistic for God to expect us to take Him seriously. Do you? Well, you say that today, but will you do it tomorrow? Okay? And I'm going to need a little bit more interaction, or I'm telling you, I'm going to come down there. Okay? You know I'm not opposed to that. Okay? So I just got to make sure we're on the same page here because you need to take up your mat today and go to where God wants you to go. Stop being a paralytic. You understand that? We are paralyzed in our spirituality because the devil wants us to be so. Did you hear what I said? We are paralyzed in our spirituality because the enemy wants us to be. He desires it. And we, we are more than willing in the modern church to say, well, you know, we want to, but we just can't. Really? We just sang a song that said there's nothing our God can't do. So if there's nothing our God can't do, what can he not do with us? Why are we paralyzed then? Because we choose to be. And so... Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Living a godly life in an ungodly society and taking up your mat today. Notice here that this is a story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And the Bible says that a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so many gathered that were there was no room left. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing in a paralytic, carried by four of his friends. And since they could not get to him, or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, by the way, it would have been a thatched roof and a dirt roof and sticks and, what, and stone and all sorts of things. So it was multi-layered. So they began digging through it, lowered the mat with the paralyzed mat, man upon it, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So clearly they did not think that Jesus was God. Yeah? Immediately, the Bible says Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. 
to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Friends, I want to be like that crowd. I want to see God move in such a manner that it's in a way that I've never seen before. Anybody want that? Anybody desire that? To stop being a paralytic. Because the sooner you stop being paralyzed spiritually, the sooner we'll see God do things we've never seen. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Are you grasping this? God is not going to force you to do things you ought to be doing. He's not going to force you to stop listening to, to the enemy and those the enemy would use. He's not going to force you to have deep faith. He's not going to force you to take up your mat. He wants you to. He's not going to force you to. You are paralyzed spiritually by choice. Because God has opened the door for every saved person to know how the foundations of the world were created. We have the ability to know everything that's humanly possible with God's power. We have the ability to do everything that God says we should do, and then some. Why? Because the power of the Spirit living in you is God. And there's nothing your God can't do. So why are we paralyzed? For me, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible involves this paralyzed man and the friends who brought him to Jesus on this mat, or you could, in, in the Greek we could also call it a bed, uh, because a lot of people, their mats were their beds. They slept on mats a lot. And so I suspect this is his sleeping mat, and uh, he was on it all the time. But this is not your typical nice little Bible story that has no relative meaning to your life. Why? Because everybody has a mat. Every one of you has got one. And I, I, when I started putting this together, I started thinking about those little mats I used to carry to the beach. Anybody ever had one of those beach mats where you, you, you take the mats all rolled up? Who's had one? Who's got one? Who t hangs on to one so when you go to the beach, you've got it? Yeah, and so you roll it up, you carry it, it's light and easy, right? And you go to the sand, you know, and of course the sand is never all nice and smooth, is it? And so you take your mat and you put it down the sand, and what do you do? You smooth out the area where you're going to put the mat. Did I just teach somebody something? <laughs> you take your mat and you smooth it out. You put it down, you push pressure, and you smooth it out. So there's this nice area, and then you put your mat down and you roll it out. Because otherwise you're laying in this, yeah. So you smooth it out and you lay, and, and that's what I think of as this mat. And let me tell you, I don't sleep on a mat at home, but I've slept on plenty of mat on the beach. Not incredibly comfortable, but you can make do. And it's the perfect beach item. You wouldn't want to sleep on them for good, but at the beach they're great. They're portable, they're light. And they keep the sand from getting in places you don't want it to be. So it's, it's a good thing, you see. Oh, I'm, you know what I'm talking about. 
Okay? So it's, it's a good thing. But in this case, everybody has a mat, and we're not talking about this one. This mat that I'm talking about today is one that we sometimes don't use properly. Because in this case, the mat stands as a picture of what I consider to be human brokenness and imperfection. And I want you to consider that today. Because everybody has a mat. And it's called human brokenness and imperfection. And let me tell you, you are keenly aware of your brokenness and your imperfections, aren't you? You've even created some that aren't real. Did you know that? I'm not going to get into that part today. But I will tell you, you've got a mat. And the mat represents your imperfections and your human brokenness. Now maybe your mat is a temper that you just can't seem to control. Anybody? Maybe it's a fear that continually overwhelms you, comes and goes, and sometimes it's sort of constant. Maybe it's an inability to trust anyone because you've been hurt so badly before. Maybe it's a terrible secret of some awful thing that you once did and you still carry the guilt around with it even though God's forgiven you. Maybe it's a sense of failure or a sense of failure in the future. Maybe it's a feeling of inadequacy. Maybe it's loneliness. And perhaps, friends, for some of us, it's vanity. And a lot of people seem to have that today. They think way too much of themselves. And there's a variety of reasons why. Maybe you've got a terribly low self-esteem, and there's a lot more of that out there than people want to admit. I recognize it almost immediately. And many people have that as well. And then we have another mat of trying to compensate for it, whatever it is. You see, your mat is your problem. Sometimes people spend their whole lives doing what I call mat management. Mat management. Or mat coping for some. But we all try to manage it in some way. Either they pretend that they don't have a mat. How close am I getting? And this is where they appear to be so healthy and so strong and so in control. And then their primary goal becomes to hide their brokenness so that no one else ever sees it, you know. Or as I stated a moment ago, they try to compensate for it so that it doesn't bother them so badly. Because they feel that they can hide it so nobody else sees it, then, then they don't feel so self-conscious about it. Now, I have a minor in psychology. And I'm not trying to psychoanalyze anybody, but I know people. And in my 30 years of ministry, I've dealt with a lot of it. 
Sometimes people would come to me and ask for help. Sometimes I felt compelled to act because they didn't want my help. But I've seen a lot. And you ladies, I'm sorry, but I read you better than I do the men. I don't know if that's a gift or a curse. I haven't figured it out yet. But the fact remains that everybody's got a mat. Some of us have multiple mats, don't we? Yeah? And our poor teenagers today are struggling because they're trying to live up not only to the expectations of their friends, but to themselves. And I've seen many a child and teenager's life that was stolen from them because they're trying to be an adult too quickly. And sometimes we hurry that along as parents and adults because we're trying to live our failures and right the wrongs in the ship of our children. Anybody done that? I've done a lot of Bible studies dealing with these things. And I can tell you that one of my favorites, it might be for men, but women have it, I think this could have the same effect on them. And the fact is, everybody carries a wound. And those of you guys who've gone through Wild Heart with me know what I'm talking about. And most of the time, the wound comes through a parent. For a boy, it comes through a father, and for a girl, it usually comes through the mom. Now, we get wounds from other people, too. But there's one that we usually seem to carry with us until God helps us get rid of it, heal it. And you know what? The worst part about it is you've got to go down into the wound where it hurts the most for God to fix it. <laughs> right? Every one of us has had some type of a wound that needed to be worked on, and we wouldn't let anybody touch it. I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen kids with a bee sting or a splinter or something like that, and to, to, you know, to get rid of it, you've got to dig in there to get it out, and no, nobody wants anybody digging anywhere. And if you, know, if you know what I'm talking about, have an ingrown toenail one time. Yeah? That is, that, that's painful, I'm telling you. Yeah? Okay? So you understand what I'm talking about. Going into the wound to heal it hurts more sometimes than you're willing to allow. And that's precisely what God is telling you he has to do. And yet for both of these problems, most people's fear is that their secret will be found out. And they just don't want anybody to know. And I think a lot of this stuff began in our childhoods. I could take a straw poll right now and go right down the line and say, did you have a great childhood or a horrible one? And most people will pick one or the other. Some would say there's somewhere in between, but very few. Usually you have a great childhood or a horrible one. I, for one, would never go back to my childhood. Anybody with me? Never go back. And some people never want to leave theirs. Right? It might also shock you that even people with horrible childhoods don't want to leave it. That's a story for another day. That's not a sermon, it's a story. But I'll tell you this, my friends. The way we were raised, our circumstances, oftentimes our looks, yeah? Our popularity, our friendships, you name it. All of those things 
have played in to the process of who we are. And you know what I found? Oftentimes we're still fighting the same battles that we did as a child. The only difference is we're better at it now. We've learned how to hide or to mask it better. Right? And we've learned how to internalize better. Now, haven't we? And you know what happens? It just simply becomes a way of life. It's just the way things are. And God says, yeah, but that's not the way things are supposed to be. And so you think, well, what am I supposed to do? How can I take up my mat and go home? Because I sure feel like that guy that got lowered down in front of Jesus, and I desperately want him to heal. What's wrong with me? And don't tell me you've never asked God to do that. You might not have done it as a Christian, and then perhaps you have. Maybe you did it before you were a Christian. But see, the circumstances have changed since you've become one and put your faith in Him. Because now you ought to believe He can and is willing to do it. You see the difference? This is huge, isn't it? And I began to think about this, and I thought, okay, how do I do this? And I had to start at the beginning, and sometimes we skip it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is right. <laughs> you have to have friends who will carry you. Every one of us has got to have friends that will carry us. And this might shock you, but the man on the mat had everything going against him, but he had one thing going for him. His friends who carried his mat. You know, friends, we live in a world with a lot of relationships, but very few friendships. Can anybody kind of nod your head in agreement here? Yeah, I don't think I need to really go down that rabbit hole much more, do I? Right? The relationships may be with a colleague. They may be sort of cordial. Uh, they may be mutually beneficial acquaintances. But those aren't friendships, are they? You see, friends, real friends are people who have a major commitment to your well-being. That also kind of depicts on what kind of friend you are, doesn't it? Now, this story in Mark 2 took place because of this irrational commitment of this man's friends. I say it's irrational because these guys knew darn well what might happen to them, and they risked it anyway. They could have gotten in trouble but on so many fronts, I don't even know where to start. They could literally have been imprisoned and never got out for doing this. Property damage was a big deal. And the house that Jesus was in was not small. So the person probably had a little money, maybe a little influence. And you just dug through his roof. 
Messiah or not, you don't do that stuff. (laughs) Follow me here? See, the, the times have changed, but the circumstances are the same. But unable to get to Jesus through any other traditional means, they sought alternative means. They became bold and rather illogical. You know, they had to, don't tell me they didn't weigh the consequences. I'm sure they did. And oftentimes, the consequences will take us right out of the game. Won't they? They came up with this idea, and they made a hole in the roof. They realized it's a rather unorthodox way to get into a room, but they were sort of desperate. Notice that they were desperate. And desperate times call for desperate measures, don't they? Kind of like the times we're living in now. Now, friends, I want to tell you something, and this is where I think you're going to struggle a little bit, and some of you are going to say, no, 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 no. And I want you to hear me out before you pass judgment on what I'm about to say. Because I can tell you this, I've looked at the Scripture again and again and again, and it cannot be refuted. As much as I want it to be, it cannot. There is a massive difference between your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends. Massive. And I don't want you to sit there and try to determine what the differences are and why they're so huge. It isn't because of what one does and what one doesn't. Because you base your friendship on feelings. You all do. Yes or no? Okay. Now that we're willing to admit that, at least some of us are, The Bible is clear that there has to be a massive difference between the two. There must be. It's not possible for them to be even slightly in the same place. Massive difference. Non-Christian friends have zero understanding of certain things. Which means they have limits and conditions on every single one of their relationships. Every one of them. They will put limits and conditions on them. And if you don't believe me, push them to the point and find out. Don't do it on purpose. But you know what I mean. And you know why? Satan teaches them to have limits and conditions. Because he does. Christian friends cannot have conditions or limits. Why? Because God teaches them that they cannot. Because He does not. Now, yes, you could make a case that some non-Christian friends may be better to you than some of your Christian friends are. In fact, Bill Coker used to say that the church is the one entity that shoots its own. And he's not incredibly wrong in that. I've seen it but not when you've got a church full of people who are, whose eyes are right there. Because when your eyes are there and not on self, that won't happen. Ever. 
Now, if it is true that you have non-Christian friends that are better than your Christian friends, then the Christian friends are not living up to the word of God as they've been commanded. That's what I'll tell you. You can say who again. If you have non-Christian friends that are better friends to you than your non-Christian friends, then your Christian friends are not obedient to the word of God. That's a fact. Can't be refuted. Now, let's change gears a second. The man's friends sacrificed for him, didn't they? Jesus was clear in John 15, 13, and in the New Living Translation, he says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. How many friends do you have that would lay down their life for you? Really? You really think so? I bet you don't have very many. Oh, there's people that think they're willing. Yeah? Your faith is tested when your life is threatened. Or your well-being is threatened. I know that when I went to Sears school. If you've ever been to Sears school, you know what I'm talking about. This is where the Marine Corps or the Army or Navy SEALs, I, I think the Air Force has groups that go to it too. But the Sears School is run by the U.S. Marine Corps. And baby, basically, it's, it's how to survive in a very unfriendly environment. And to not only live on the land with very little clothing, one knife, and one live rabbit. I'm not kidding you. Live for two weeks with no shelter, your skivvy drawers, a knife, and a rabbit. And you have to evade capture, and they're always looking for you. And if they find you, they will take you to a simulated prison camp and try to get you to talk. You find yourself making up some stuff. <laughs> Listen. The British Army has this uh, a very elite force called the SAS, Special Boat Service. And they put these guys through a torture you wouldn't believe that mimics very closely what torture would be. be they, they're they actually get them close, hypothermia, and all sorts of things that could kill them to teach them because they only take the best. And those that fail never get into the SAS. Because if you're captured and you're part of the SAS, chances are very good you'll never say a word. You follow me here? We have training like that. You don't know what sacrifice is. Nobody in the modern world really does. We have too many amenities. We've lost what sacrifice is. And when we say we're willing to lay down our lives for our friends, I'm not convinced. Uncommon value is a virtue. And it's lost on us mostly. And I say that, friends, because I'll tell you this. Everybody needs friends 
okay, who will be there for them. I mean, really be there for you. And these must be people who are willing to sacrifice for you. Really sacrifice for you. Now again, you may have good friends who are non-believers. And yes, they might sacrifice for you. But as always, it will likely be conditional. If it hasn't yet, let's find out when the tough gets going. Okay? You see, in other words, they're going to determine when enough is enough. I know that because I've done it. You know what? I'm willing to bet you've done it. Oh, come on. Tell me you haven't determined when enough is enough for somebody. Hmm? Whether they've helped and sacrificed more than they think is necessary or more than they're willing to do. Or it will, it will be that it's been enough times or it's been enough time that it's been happening. You know, I've done it too many times or it's been too drawn out. That's when we determine when enough is enough. And at a certain point, it doesn't matter who the person is. Listen. I know that everybody grows weary in sacrificing for someone else. I know that. The only difference is Christian friends don't get to determine when enough is enough. Did you hear that? You see why I said pay attention? Christian friends don't have the ability or the authority to determine when enough is enough for you. They cannot. Why? Because only God determines. They don't get to determine how much or how often they're a sacrifice for you. They don't. God says so. Now, if they're a really, really good friend, God will tell them to keep sacrificing. If they're not such a good friend, God is pretty sure to tell them, ah, you've done enough. How right am I here? But you see, unbelieving friends, they don't even have this mandate. So they're going to decide, based on their own feelings, their own beliefs, their own value system, and the advice of their other friends and others, as to when enough is enough. You see, a friend that will carry and sacrifice for you is under the direction of God if they are really true Christians. And if they won't do it, then Jesus says they aren't Christians at all. You don't have to say it. He says it. And by the way, he's the one that decides their status as a Christian anyway. Not them. Not their church. Not their pastor. Not their other friends. Not society. But him. You need friends who will carry you. And you better pick good ones. Ones that are right here. Secondly, I'm going to change gears again. You have to have faith in action. Now, this is a big one because usually healing stories spoke of Jesus seeing the faith of the one asking for healing for themselves or their child. In this case, not so much. 
Here, it was the faith of the man's friends, not the paralyzed man. In fact, Jesus saw their ingenuity, their resourcefulness, but mostly I think what he saw was their persistence. I think he had to go, wow. I don't know if wow was in use back then. But if Jesus could have said wow, he'd have said wow. Yeah? And behind all of this was their faith, you know. And Jesus saw a group who acted on this irrational commitment to the well-being of one of their friends, one of their number, one of their group. These guys had faith, and it showed, you see. They acted on it. And what I noticed here is that faith will always act. It has to. Or it isn't faith at all. How do I know? The Bible says so. Now you know, if I'm going to make a statement, chances are pretty darn good that I'm going to back it up with Scripture. Yeah? You see, visible faith acts before the intended outcome. Let me explain that. You see, faith gives, and it gives, and it gives. It simply anticipates the financial blessing because God has promised it. It gives, anticipating that God's going to outgive them. That's what it does. Faith walks without even knowing the way or where it might end up. You understand? It commits without knowing all the answers. Maybe even none of the answers. And you tell me when the last time was you stepped out on faith on any of those three without knowing anything. Where it's going to end up? What the benefit might be? Or what the loss is going to be? Because you've been taught to evaluate everything before you do anything. Hmm? Now, I'm not trying to tell you to be reckless. But I'm grateful that God had reckless love for me. Anybody? Just a thought. So why can't I have reckless faith in Him? Anyone? You see... Visible faith is not something you have, it's something you do. When you do it, it will prove that you have it. And James is clear. In chapter 2, verse 26, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So if you think you have faith, look directly at your actions. And if there aren't any, then you must not have any faith. You see, you can't, you can't run from this. You can't idealize it. You can't deny it. It's here. And remember, the faith is moving regardless of what you know or don't know and without regard 
of what you might gain or lose. And those things are what keeps most people, I think, you know, from faith in the first place. We simply are not willing to risk a loss or hurt or, get this, time. We simply are not. And we will determine our faith to everybody based on our assessment of the loss or the hurt or the time. Now call me a liar. Better yet, call this a liar. It's all right there. And I'm grateful that Jesus risked all of those things and more for me. Did he risk loss, hurt, time? Oh my. And what else? You see, don't you? Thirdly, you need forgiveness that pardons sin. And before we can really get into that, I have to tell you, look at what Jesus healed first in the man. Upon seeing their faith, Jesus didn't say, your body is healed. No, instead he said, your sins are forgiven. In other words, the man and his friends came for physical healing, but Jesus gave him forgiveness instead. Now, I ask you, and I had to ask myself, what would you want if you were paralyzed? Hmm? Hmm. What's the cliche? Cat got your tongue? Now, let's be honest. What would you want if you were paralyzed? Okay, so what do you want knowing you are spiritually paralyzed? What do you want? Do you know I believe that there are people in the church that know they're spiritually paralyzed and they don't want to be healed? Because they... Because being paralyzed is comfortable. Just like every other thing in life that you've dealt with all this time, you become comfortable with it. And sooner or later, it might become a crutch to you. And you can't live without it. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Do you understand the depth of this? This is massive. If you are physically paralyzed, there's no question in my mind what you'd want. Why wouldn't you want to be healed if you're spiritually paralyzed? Who would refuse that? And if you were, let me ask you this question. Let's say you, you were physically paralyzed. Would you want your body healed or would you prefer to have your sins forgiven? You see, for you and I in here, we might choose the latter. I would think we would, but not everybody out there would. You understand that? There are people that would choose to have their body healed knowing that without forgiveness of sins, it's eternity. They would rather live this life than the next one. This one's more important to them. 
You know what, friends? That's seeping into the church today. This life is more important than the next one. I see it all the time. Yes, I could point fingers, but I'm not going to. None of us should point fingers, but we should also know those who do it because we have responsibility to them. You understand that? I think too often we want the physical healing over the spiritual blessing. We want the temporary fix over the eternal reality. More to the point, we want to treat the symptoms and not the illness. In other words, we want the external improvement over the internal change. We would prefer that God would modify our looks or our body stature versus our ability inside to be happy with who we are. Ouch is right. It's, it all starts right here. My question is, who's controlling this? Hmm? It's a fair question, and everybody's got to answer it. Because you're going to answer it one day. Every one of us are. And here's my question. Why might that be? Well, I think it's because we typically don't want to change. And what I mean by that is that Jesus won't do what we want. Have you ever had that argument? Lord, why won't you just do what I want? Has anybody done that? Have you said, Lord, why, why won't you just do this? I want it. And you know what? I ought to have it. I deserve it. We tell ourselves all the time how much we deserve stuff. We're the best at doing it too. You know what he's going to do? What's best for you? You see... We want to claim Christian, Christianity, heaven, and God's protection and all His blessings. Yet we clearly want to live life our way, doing or not doing what suits us in the manner and way and the timing that we choose it. We want benefits without sacrificing or without changing. And as I've always said, we want to claim all the blessings of God, but we refuse to identify with the cross. That Jesus said, we're going to have to take up every single day and carry it in order to follow Him. So you're not really following Him if you're not doing it. You're following something. It's a figment that Paul says, you're practicing something, right, that isn't real. You have a form of religion, but you're denying its power. Is your Christianity the Christianity that God says it is? Or is it the one that you want it to be? Or others, or whatever. So let's dig a little deeper. Why would Jesus say to this guy, your sins are forgiven you? Obviously, he'd 
forgave him. Obviously, the guy had some, and they needed to be forgiven. But why did he do it? Why didn't he just heal the guy and then forgive his sins and not tell anybody? First of all, this man had a deeper need than physical healing. We're not sure we can identify with that, but we understand why he did. You follow me? This guy was spiritually dead. He was going to hell. Paralytic or not, he was going. Somehow we kind of believe that because he was a paralytic, he shouldn't have had to suffer hell. Really? Hell receives all people. It doesn't care about your circumstances. Doesn't want to know. It just wants company. Because hell is Satan. You understand? Let me, let me, let me tell you something. We're so worried about the place that hell is. It isn't. Oh, it's going to be. But more to the point, it's like I said, God, the presence of God is a dimension. So is hell. So life is wherever God is, and death and hell is wherever Satan is. So whose presence do you want to be in? That's the question. You, do, you, do you grasp this? Well, it's not that simple. Yes, it is that simple. And maybe it's never been explained to you like that before. But that's what it is. You see, this man was doubly paralyzed. He didn't even know it. Now, I think there are a lot of Christians in the same position today. Now, the rabbis would have said, well, no sick man is healed until his sins are forgiven. And that's because a lot of suffering that we have today is rooted in sin. It began there. Its origin is there. Not that this man was especially sinful. He probably wasn't. I don't know what he could really actually have done. Right? But he stands as a kind of object lesson to teach us the truth that death and disease are consequences of sin. Yeah, I said it. Because the Bible says it. If there were no sin in the universe, get this, there would be no sickness. If there was no disobedience, there would be no death. Now, we may want physical healing, which is a temporary fix, but we, what we've always needed is the spiritual blessing, the eternal reality that can only come through the forgiveness of sin. Now, John MacArthur, who is a tremendous pastor, theologian, and author, uh, correctly states, the most distinctive message of Christianity is the reality that sin can be forgiven. In other words, Forgiveness is nothing less than a miracle from God. It's a miracle we receive the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, forgiveness of sin solves our spiritual and eternal problems. And it also restores us to this right relationship with God, which provides blessings, it provides comfort, it provides protection, and companionship right here on this earth from Him. Want to talk about a perfect world? 
I hear that all the time. In a perfect world, let me tell you about a perfect world. That conversation about a perfect world would have to include all of these things I just discussed. Or it could never be perfect. Think about that for a minute. How do I know? Because the perfect world that is coming in eternity is going to have them. And aren't you grateful for that? Lastly, you need a God who is bigger than your problems. Let's begin with the paralyzed man. At this point in the story, the focus shifted from the man on the mat to the Pharisees who are gathered, you know, at the fringe and the edge of the crowd. Of course, they don't come in, you know, they're kind of hanging out so they're not noticed, but everybody knew they were there. Jesus was candidly aware that they were there. Now, these guys understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They did. When he said it, they went. And they looked at each other. They were so shocked that they didn't even respond. Now I know. Because the Bible says, and Jesus knowing their... Yeah. Jesus knew their thoughts. And so they knew what Jesus was saying, and we ought to give them credit for knowing that, because not everybody understood it. They did, though. They might have been the only people in the room that understood that. I'm not sure the guy on the mat knew it. I don't think his friends did. They all probably went at the same time. We, we, we didn't come for that. The guy probably thought, oh, okay, I, I didn't come for that. You know? I saw a movie... Uh, I, I, it was, it's, a, it's one of the British uh, spoofs. You know, uh, Mr. Bean, you ever seen Mr. Bean? He's, okay. So, Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean went in posing as a doctor some, for something. I don't know. And there are people lined up in this medical ward, and they all had charts on the end of the bed. And one guy was in for an appendectomy, and one guy was in for something else, and one guy was in for something else. And Mr. Bean had their charts, and he somehow screwed them all up and put them on the wrong beds. Imagine your surprise if you wake up after your surgery and they didn't address the problem that you had. <laughs> yeah? Anybody seen that? Come on, guys, that was funny. Uh, nobody is going to go to a hospital for procedure and wake up and find that you had something else done that you didn't need. You would not be happy about that, would you? And sometimes it can be pretty hilarious what they've done. Hmm. They didn't come there for that. Sometimes we go into the throne room of God requesting one thing. He gives us something else. We don't like it. Sound familiar? You would probably sue your doctor in hospital if they did something you didn't need, did the wrong thing. But all you can do is harbor hard feelings and anger toward God when He doesn't give you what you want. I was right. Hurts, don't it? Now, 
Now, it's true that only God can forgive sin. It's also true that he forgave this man's sin. And when the Pharisees heard that, they said to themselves, does he think he's God? <laughs> you see, the Pharisees suffered from what I call the paralysis of analysis. They thought too much. And of course, none of you in here ever thinks too much, do you? You don't analyze or overanalyze anything, do you? Now do you? No. But when you do, you're probably paralyzing yourself. Aren't you? See, being paralyzed spiritually is going to take on a whole new meaning for you. This is something you're probably never going to forget. Am I so paralyzed that I'm polarized? Huh? Deer in the headlights? Anybody? They were so busy trying to analyze what Jesus was saying compared to their own understanding of the law that they missed the fact that God was standing right in front of them. Now they all knew the Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. They knew what signs to look for. They knew he was coming, yet they missed him standing right before their eyes. Why? Because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Now, we would say we wouldn't do that. We couldn't do that because he's already come. But you are doing it. And you take yourself right out of the spiritual game when Jesus doesn't do what you demand he ought to. And the timing you want it done, and the way that you want it, just because. And we'll harbor hard feelings, get angry with God, say we don't understand, feel like we're distant from God, and that's all true. But not because he moved, because you did. God moved, just not in the way you want it. Didn't move away from you, though. You did that all by yourself. But somebody else is going to get the blame for that, because you certainly aren't going to take responsibility. You know why? Because we're good at giving ourselves excuses and crutches, because we don't want to be held accountable to that. I know I don't. Do you? I'm sure I don't. Do we want a Messiah and yet demand how he should be? I think in the modern church we have. Because when we play Christian our way by thinking feeling and believing how we want and what we want, then we've also demanded that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to be who and what we want Him to be as well. We're doing it. And you know what, friends? None of us can do that any more than the Pharisees could. Yet we sure point a finger at them, don't we? But, but there's more. First of all, there's a bigger part of the story. In fact, the story isn't even over yet. You see, one miracle had already taken place, and another was about to happen. Jesus, in typical rabbinic fashion, answered the Pharisees' question with yet another question, which is a technique that these Jewish lawyers would probably appreciate, 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and take your mat and walk, or go home? On one level, the answer is neither. Both are equally impossible for humans to do. The crucial difference is that one can say, your sins are forgiven, and no one can, can contradict it because forgiveness is not visible to the eyes. On the other hand, there's an easy way to check it if someone says, get up and walk. Why? Because healing is a visible miracle. It can't be faked. Well, not legitimately anyway. Now, let me explain this. You see, Jesus was offering the Pharisees incontrovertible proof of who he really was. And if Jesus were a blasphemer, how could he then perform this miracle? Right? Of course, it would have been impossible. So Jesus is basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, and don't get angry with me. I think, I, I think a little latitude would be good here. But Jesus is basically saying, look, if I don't heal this man, then you are absolutely right about who you think I am. But if I do heal him, then you must admit that I'm exactly who I claim to be. And they didn't want to do either. How many times could they not answer? How many times did he send them away, shaking their heads, talking to themselves? Well, if we say this, then this will happen. If we say this, then the crowd will do this. So they just walk away frustrated. He did to him again. Right here. If I don't heal this man, then I'm exactly who you think I am, which is nobody. A blasphemer. But if I do, you have no choice. You have no choice but to admit that I am the Son of God and I can forgive sins. Now what? And he, and he, and he kind of went... He did it again. He does that to me and I hate it. I hate it when it's checkmate. And I still try to find a way out. I've done it in chess. I've done it in life. I'll keep moving, I'll move stuff. Have you done it? Are you doing it? Notice Jesus' statement that you may know in verse 10 is the key to the whole passage. Jesus performed the miracle they could see so they could know he had already done one, another miracle that they couldn't see. You see, the healing itself was instantaneous. It was complete. It was public. The four friends who brought the paralytic could easily testify how thoroughly paralyzed and sick that their friend had been. And yet, here's the whole crowd, easily able to testify how well he was now. Yeah. So complete was the healing that the man picked up his bed, began to walk home. You see, the problem had the paralyzed man. But now, the man prevailed over the problem. Why? Because God was bigger than the problem. He always was. Both healing and forgiveness flow from the words of Christ. They always have. He has authority to do both. Because he's a son of man, which means what? He is God. And as our worship team comes... No matter how big your problems, 
If you're a true believer, then your God is much bigger than your problems. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.